0: In San Francisco, California, between October 1973 and April 1974, a string of racially motivated killings and attacks were committed by a group of four black Muslim extremist serial killers who called themselves Death Angels. During their killing spree, they murdered at least 15 people and wounded eight others. A special task force was created to solve and stop the murders. And although these killers were brought to justice, The aftermath they left behind was startling. I'm your host, Nisa. Welcome to the Lost Crimes Library podcast. This is the chilling story of the zebra murders. The zebra murders happened in two waves. The first wave of murders began on October 19, 1973, when 30-year-old Richard Haig and his 28-year-old wife named Kita were walking near their Telegraph Hill home in San Francisco. At some point during their walk home, they were kidnapped right off the street by a group of black men and forced into a van. During the kidnapping and attack, Kita was fondled by two of the men, and a third man used a machete to cut her neck. She was cut so severely that her head was nearly decapitated. Kita's husband, Richard, was taken by two of the men and was brutally attacked and left for dead. But Richard actually ended up surviving the attack. And shortly after this first brutal attack and vicious murder, this unknown group was searching for their next victim. Ten days after the first attack on October 29th, 28 year old Frances Rose was shot repeatedly by a man. This man had blocked Frances' car's path and demanded a ride in her car as she was driving up to the entrance gate of the University of California Extension. Frances Rose was the second murder victim by this unidentified group of black men, and unfortunately, this killing rampage was just beginning because a few days later, on November 9th, 1973, another person was randomly attacked. 26-year-old Robert Stokeman, who was a clerk with the Pacific Gas and Electric Company, was assaulted by an armed man. During the attack, Robert was able to gain control of the gun and fired back at the attacker. This saved his life, and led to the arrest and conviction of the perpetrator, who was a man named Leroy Doctor, But capture of one of the men didn't stop the group from committing more crimes. By the end of the month, on November 25th, this group had reached their fifth victim in the course of one month. Their fifth victim was Salim Arakat, a 53-year-old man and Jordanian Arab Muslim. His murder was very different from the others. Salim was first bound and forced into the restroom of his own grocery store. And then he was shot dead. The next month, on December 11th, 1973, another murder victim was added to the list. 26-year-old artist Paul Danzig was shot three times in his chest by a man, as Paul was preparing to make a phone call from a payphone. Two days later, on the evening of December 13th, 35-year-old Art Agnos, who was to become the future mayor of San Francisco, was attending a meeting in a predominantly black neighborhood, Portrero Hill to discuss building a government-funded health clinic nearby. After this meeting, Agnos was talking with two women near the street when he was approached by a man. When this man walked up, he pulled out a gun and shot Art Agnos twice in the chest. Art was seriously injured, but he survived the attack, unlike many others who had been targets of the serial killers. Art Agnos was not the only person attacked that night. On that same evening, a 31-year-old woman named Marietta Di Girolamo was walking around Divisadero Street when she was suddenly shoved into a doorway by a strange man and was shot twice in the chest. These shots were so powerful that her body spun around, and the man ended up shooting her once in the back instead of the chest. Just as Art this woman was approached by an unknown man, and just like Art, she too was shot twice in the chest. However, unlike Art Agnos Marietta died from her injuries. Seven days later, there was another attack. On December 20th, a 20-year-old college student named Angela Roselli was shot three times near her apartment by one of two men. Although she survived the attack, she was severely injured, as one bullet nicked her spine. And it wasn't long before the next attack in San Francisco. That same evening, an 81-year-old janitor, Ilario was shot while walking on his way home from work in the Bayview District. He was shot four times in the shoulder and chest, and he died almost instantly. On December 22nd, two more victims died within six minutes of each other. 91-year-old Neil Moynihan was murdered as he was walking near the Civic Center while shopping. A man walked in front of Neil and shot him in the face, neck, and heart. It is believed that this killer then chased down another victim, named Mildred Hosler who was 50 years old at the time. As she was heading to her bus stop, she was shot four times and died from her wounds. By Christmas Eve in 1973, 12 people had been victimized by this unknown group of killers, and there seemed no end in sight. On December 24th, another person was killed, but their identity is still unknown to this day. The John Doe's remains were recovered the following year in February 1974. Within three months, 13 people had been viciously attacked, and nine had been violently murdered. Widespread panic began to set in in San Francisco, and the public was searching for safety in numbers and safety in local law enforcement. After the first wave of murders, the city put out an order to increase the police presence throughout the area, hoping that this would stop any future attacks and help police find the group responsible for the murders. Investigators from the San Francisco Police Department were shocked and confused by the randomness and apparent lack of motive in the killings. It was evident that these attacks were brutal, and to police there was a clear lack of remorse from the gunmen. Although the attacks seemed random, investigators used initial evidence to find a common pattern in the murders. They determined that in a hit and run shooting, the gunman would approach his victim on foot, shoot the victim repeatedly at close range and then flee on foot. Investigators also linked the multiple shootings and attacks by the killer's preference for using a 32 caliber pistol. They determined this based on the slugs recovered from the victims and the shell casings left at the crime scenes. After finding this crucial connection, a special task force was formed to solve and stop the murders. This task force was led by detectives Gus Correras and John Fatinos, the San Francisco police chief, Donald Scott, assigned the Z police radio frequency for their exclusive use in this case. This group became known as the zebra task force due to the letter Z being known in the common phonetic use as zebra. And this is how these murders became known as the zebra murders. Despite the increased police presence and the watchful eye of citizens of San Francisco, the zebra murders continued into 1974. The killings resumed on January 29, 1974 To be exact, the second wave of murders began with six shootings, in which four people were fatally shot. 32-year-old Tana Smith was shot while walking to a fabric store. 69-year-old Vincent Wallen was shot on his walk home. That same day, an 84-year-old named John Bambic was shot while collecting discarded bottles and cans. Their next victim was a 45-year-old housewife named Jane Holly. She was gunned down while doing her laundry at a laundromat, and a 23-year-old woman by the name of Roxanne McMillan was another target by the Death Angels. She was shot as she carried items from her car to her new apartment. Out of these attacks that day, only Roxanne McMillan survived, but she was told she would have to use a wheelchair for the rest of her life. The sixth victim on that day was Thomas Bates a hitchhiker who was shot three times that night near Emeryville, but ended up surviving. Initially, his attack was not associated with the zebra murders, most likely because him being a hitchhiker did not fit the criteria of the other victims that the Death Angels attacked. By April 1974, it was evident that the killers were back and weren't done with their violent mission. On April 1st, two Salvation Army cadets named Thomas Rainwater and Linda Storey, were walking toward the Mayfair Market, two blocks from the Salvation Army School for Officers Training Center, when a black man who was following the cadets overtook them, wheeled around, fired four shots at them, and fled. Thomas, who was only 19 at the time, died from his injuries. Linda, who was 21 when she was shot, survived the attack. Supposedly, 15 seconds after the attack, two policemen arrived on the scene and initiated a manhunt for the attackers. However, the manhunt was unsuccessful. It was at this crime scene that investigators suspected that the zebra killers struck again. This was determined by the shell casings found on the sidewalk, which were found to be from a 32 caliber gun, the same gun that was used in the first wave of murders and attacks. Unfortunately, this development did not prove helpful in deterring any future attacks or murders. On Easter Sunday, Thirteen days after the most recent attack of those two Salvation Army cadets, Ward Anderson, an 18-year-old merchant seaman, and Terry White, a 15-year-old student, were both shot and wounded as they stood at a bus stop at the corner of Fillmore and Hayes Streets. They too identified their attacker as a black man. According to them, this man had approached them on foot and fled after firing at them. The final zebra killing would be on April 16, 1974. When 23-year-old Nelson T. Shields IV, the son of a wealthy DuPont executive, joined a friend to pick up a rug at a house on Vernon Street in the Ingleside District. Nelson had opened the back of his station wagon and was making room in the back for the rug to fit when he was suddenly shot repeatedly and killed. According to a witness, who later testified, they saw a black man rushing up Vernon Street at the time of the shooting. Again, the police had suspected that this was another zebra murder. And again, they determined this based on the shell casings found at the scene, which matched a 32 caliber, the size of the weapon and the previous killings. This second wave of murders, just as the first, terrified the people of San Francisco, and there were renewed precautions taken. During this time, the city even suffered economically due to the zebra murders. There were major losses in revenue due to a drop in tourist traffic. At night, Streets were deserted even in neighborhoods like North Beach, where they were known to have a a seven-nights-a-week nightlife. Overall, there was much pressure mounting on the San Francisco Police Department to catch this violent killing group. So the San Francisco Police Department decided to take drastic measures to find the killers. This first step was taken by Inspector Gus Carreras, who dictated generic suspect descriptions with the best-known characteristics of the killers to SFPD sketch artist Hobart Nelson who drew two composite sketches based on the descriptions. After coming up with these two generic composite sketches, the San Francisco mayor at the time, Joseph Alioto, announced SFPD officers would begin racial profiling. Just kidding. Of course he didn't say that. Instead, he said that SFPD officers would begin stopping and questioning quote, large numbers of black citizens, end quote, who resembled the description of the killer. And just so you know, the killer was described as a black man with a short afro and a narrow chin. So like, basically nearly every black man in the 70s. I've included a link to the composite sketches in the show notes if you want to have a look. But wait, it gets worse. Once these men were stopped, checked, and cleared, each citizen received a specially printed zebra check card from the officers. These cards were meant to be used by the black men to show any officer who came to stop them again that they were already checked and accounted for. During the first weekend, the program was in operation. More than 500 black men were racially profiled by police. Naturally, this zebra check program was widely and vocally opposed and criticized by the black community. However, Dr. Washington Carver, the first black member of the police commission, called for blacks to be understanding of the exceptional circumstances. It wasn't only outside criticism the police department was facing. Internally, there were people against this program, too. The Officers for Justice group led by Nation of Islam associate Jesse Byrd, described the policy as, quote, racist and unproductive, end quote. Acting on a lawsuit filed by the NAACP and the ACLU, U.S. District Judge Alfonso J. Zerpoli ruled the widespread profiling of blacks was unconstitutional and police suspended the operation. After the zebra check program failed, the city offered a $30,000 reward for information about the murders, and by April, a break in the case came. Anthony Harris, an employee at Black Self-Help Moving and Storage, called police a week after the sketches had been posted and agreed to meet with zebra case detectives in Oakland. Anthony Harris claimed to be one of the Black men featured in the police sketches. He provided numerous specific details regarding several of the attacks, and police believed him because he provided details about the attacks that the police had never released to the public. Harris denied that he had committed any of the murders, but he admitted that he had been present at many of them. He also told the police about this black Muslim group he was a part of and told them of a homicide that did not make the papers. He informed them that the group had abducted a white homeless man, which we now know as the John Doe mentioned earlier in the episode from Girardelli Square. They took the man to black self-help moving and storage warehouse where they gagged and tied him. According to Harris, while this man was conscious, others of the group took turns hacking away at his limbs. He then told detectives that they had dumped the body into the bay. He told his story in such detail that the police were convinced that he was telling the truth. In addition, it supported their recovery of a body which was previously discovered on December 24, 1973. This unidentified body was a bound and badly butchered male torso and limbs missing his hands, feet, and head. It had washed up in the city's Ocean Beach district at the end of Pacheco Street. Anthony Harris gave the police names, dates, addresses, and details, enough information for the prosecutor to issue arrest warrants against the suspects. Obviously, Anthony Harris sought and received immunity from prosecution for his help in breaking the Zebra case wide open. He also received new identities for himself, his girlfriend, and her child. With a major break in the zebra case, there was only one thing left for the San Francisco Police Department to do. Find the notorious zebra killers and bring them to justice. On May 1st, 1974, simultaneous police raids during the pre-dawn hours were made, resulting in the arrest of Larry C. Green and JCX Simon in an apartment building at 844 Grove Street and more suspects were arrested at Black Self-Help Moving and Storage's facility. However, of the 7 men arrested that day, 4 men were released for lack of evidence. The Zebra serial killers were identified as Larry Craig Green, JCX Simon, Manuel Moore, and Jesse Lee Cooks, along with Leroy Doctor who was arrested back in 1973, Edward Land, and Anthony Harris who was known as a co-conspirator but claims he never actually killed anyone. Mayor Alioto announced the news of the raids and said that the killings were perpetrated by a group who called themselves the Death Angels and targeted whites and dissident blacks. He said that their members had to show proof of attacks and murders to advance in the cult. He also revealed a chilling discovery that this extremist group may have killed as many as 73 people since 1970. However, black Muslim leader John Muhammad, the minister of mosque number 26 in San Francisco, denied the allegations that there was a Black Muslim conspiracy to kill whites. To show support, the Nation of Islam paid for attorneys for Larry Craig Green, Manuel Moore, and J.C.X. Simon. However, Jesse Lee Cooks pleaded guilty before the trial, and the Nation did not provide him with defense counsel. The trial started on March 3, 1975. There were obviously efforts by the defense to discredit Anthony Harris' statements, but this proved unsuccessful. Harris revealed many gruesome details over 12 days of testimony that shocked and abhorred the jury. The prosecution presented evidence of a 32 caliber Beretta semi-automatic pistol which was recovered from the backyard of a home near the scene of the last murder. They demonstrated the chain of ownership of the gun to one of the workers at Black Self Help Moving in storage, and showed that the gun had been used in many of the murders. Based upon the testimony of 108 witnesses, including Anthony Harris, 8,000 pages, totaling 3.5 million words worth of transcripts, and culminating in what was then the longest criminal trial in California history, Larry Green, J.C.X. Simon, and Manuel Moore were convicted in 1976 of first-degree murder, and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. Jesse Lee Cooks took a plea deal. The jury deliberated for 18 hours. Each man, including Jesse Lee Cooks, was sentenced to life in prison. These brutal killings shocked and horrified San Francisco residents, police, and even scholars who have continued to study this extremist group. Criminology professor Anthony Walsh wrote in a 2005 article that the, quote, San Francisco-based death angels may have killed more people in the early to mid-1970s than all the other serial killers operating during that period combined, end quote. I think what confused investigators then and what has intrigued scholars and criminologists since was the sheer randomness of these crimes. Most serial killers are methodical and ritualistic, but the zebra murders were rather spontaneous and unplanned in comparison to the many other serial killers that operated during the 70s. The victims aren't categorized by any identifying factors like gender or age or even ethnicity. The killings happened across many locations in the city. At a bus stop, at a university, at a grocery store. All the investigators really had to rely on were those 32 caliber shell casings and the conscience of Anthony Harris. Most of the Death Angels killing group has died in prison. On March 12, 2015, 69-year-old JCX Simon was found unresponsive in his cell at San Quentin State Prison. Since 1976, he had been serving a life sentence there with the possibility of parole. He was declared dead of unknown causes pending an autopsy. Manuel Moore died in 2017 at age 75 at the California Healthcare Facility in Stockton. According to an article for NBC, Jesse Lee Cooks, who was 76, was found unresponsive in July 2021 at the California Medical Facility in Vacaville, where he was in the hospice unit. The fourth man, Larry C. Green, who was 69, is serving a life sentence at California State Prison Solano. If you want to interact with the podcast on social media or share with me some of your own theories about the cases, be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at the LCL Pod. Don't forget to share the podcast so we can get more attention for these very important cases. And don't forget to follow the Lost Crimes Library so you won't miss any new episodes. Thank you for supporting the show. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,